Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And first graders, uh, I'm going to read it out of your Bible this morning, okay? So if you want to follow along, it's on page 1425, 1425. Good luck finding it in there, okay? Uh, it's Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. And I'm going to read it, like I said, out of here. Um, This is uh, a translation designed for young readers. Um, And so uh, we'll read this together again, 1425. First graders, you can follow along if you'd like to. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 17. Here is what I'm telling you. I'm speaking for the Lord as I warn you. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Their thoughts don't have any purpose. They can't understand the truth. They are separated from the life of God. That's because... They don't know him, and they don't know him because their hearts are stubborn. They have lost all feeling for what is right, so they have given themselves over to all kinds of evil pleasures. They take part in every kind of unclean act, and they are full of greed. But that is not the way of life in Christ that you learned about. You heard about Christ and were taught about life in him. What you learned was the truth about Jesus. You were taught not to live the way you used to. You must get rid of your old way of life. That's because it has been made impure by the desire for things that lead you astray. You were taught to be made new in your thinking. You were taught to start living a new life. It is created to be truly good and holy just as God is. So each of you must get rid of your lying. Speak the truth to your neighbor. We are all parts of one body. Scripture says, when you are angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't give the devil a chance. Anyone who has been stealing must never steal again. Instead, they must work. They must do something useful with their own hands. Then they will have something to give to people in need. Don't let any evil talk come out of your mouths. Say only what will help to build others up and meet their needs. Then what you say will help those who listen. Do not make God's Holy Spirit mourn. The Holy Spirit is the proof that you belong to God, and the Spirit is proof that God will set you completely free. Get rid of all hard feelings, anger, and rage. Stop all fighting and lying. Don't have anything to do with any kind of hatred. Be kind and tender to one another. Forgive one another, just as God forgave you because of what Christ has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Who are you? Who who are you, like, really? Like, your your true you, your true true self. And how do you even begin to, to answer that question? You know, in, in different cultures, the, the answer to that question of who are you, like the true you, you would look at your people, your tribe, your group, right? Or you look at your location, where, where you live, your nation maybe, or your, your religion. And that, that would tell you who you are. Others, others would look at their family identity. So I'm a Miller, right? That's who I am. I'm a Miller, right? Uh, and like a long time ago, that would also tell you what I did for a living, right? I'm a Miller and I mill things. And that's what my dad did and his dad and his dad and his dad, right? That would be a descriptor of of who I am. But for us, culturally, it's been said that we we live in in essence in sort of an identity crisis. We don't know who we are anymore. 
Uh, some have even suggested that this has contributed to our rise in anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Because we, we no longer point to our people to tell us who we are because they, our people change so fast, don't they? Uh, we don't look to our family as much anymore because family identity, can tend, like the ties fade a little bit more quickly. It's not geography because we move. It's not our job because we change jobs. I think it's part of the reason why we cling so tightly, some of us, to our political identities, our political parties. It's because for some of us, it's all we have left, right? And so modern, modern society has left us with very few tools to answer the question, who are you really? And essentially, we've just said, well, go figure it out on your, on your own, right? Whatever you come up with, it's good, Right? Which, in, in some ways, it feels like freedom. It's like, okay, well, then I get to figure out all that by, my, by myself. And then, after a while, like, the pressure and the disappointment, the frustration begins to mount, doesn't it? Like, what if I make a mistake? What if I never actually figure it out? I spend my entire life wondering who I am. And so we look maybe at, to our desires to help us. I think that's where we tend to go culturally. Our desires define who I am, but, like, Really? That just leaves us aimless, doesn't it? Because even then, do, do, you, do you look at your deepest desires or your strongest desires? You follow me? You know the difference, right? I mean, our strongest desires are typically what we default to, right? Anger, lust, greed, hunger, right? Those are strong desires. Those aren't deep desires. My deep desire is to be a person of peace and integrity, generosity and faithfulness. Are you, with, are you with me? But how often do we let our strongest desires define who we are instead of our deep desires? Again, this is, this is kind of the, the modern problem. If you, if you don't know who you are, then you don't know what you're for. If you don't know why you exist, you're not going to know the best way to live. And so we, we just sort of make it up as we go and hope for the best. And oftentimes we end up isolated and exhausted. Who are you? Well, God, in his word, wants to tell us. He, want, he wants to answer that question for you. If you're, if you're a Christian, you never have to wonder who you are or why you exist because God tells us. And maybe that sounds a little bossy of God, like what gives him the right but listen, would you rather muddle through struggling to find the answer for yourself or would you rather the God who made you, who sees you, who knows you, who actually knows why he made you, right, and promises good things for you? Will you let him tell you who you are? Because here's, here's what he says today. Like if you want to discover your true you, right, it's actually pretty simple. Here's what he says. The true you is the new you. We'll, we'll unpack what that means. But that's, that's basically what Paul says, right, in God's word, that the true you, you, your truest self, is the one that's been made new by God himself through Jesus Christ. Like, if you want to know who you really are, deep within, because of Jesus, it's brand new, and it's beautiful. And so turn to Ephesians 4, if you haven't already. Again, first graders, it's on page 1425. I'm going I'm to use this one this time, okay? This one's just, you know, I... I this one's so familiar to me. So, um, but you can, yeah, find it in 1425. 
Because Paul, Paul begins this section, if you're listening as we, as we read it, he begins by talking about who we were. If we want to know who we are, we have to first look back at who, who we were, right, apart from Jesus. Do you remember who you were? I do. I mean, I, I grew up in church, but it wasn't until my, my senior year of high school that I really gave Jesus my life, I would say. Or I got serious about my faith. So it's coming up on 25 years ago this fall. Um, and as I, as I look back on that time, I, like many teenagers, I did not know who I was. Um, and, but what I did know, I didn't really, didn't really like, if I'm honest. I was, I was ruled by my strong desires, not my deep desires, right? And if I'm completely honest, there are, there are pains and heartaches, 25 years old, that still occasionally come into my mind, right? Regrets, disappointments. And maybe you can point to similar things in your own life, right? I don't know how long you've been, been following Jesus, but the, the old you, the things, like, do you still have any of those regrets, those dis- the shame for some of us? Or maybe, maybe if that's not the right question for you, to, of, of like, who were you before Jesus? But maybe you just ask yourself, who would you be right now if Jesus hadn't invaded your life? Like the things that you know to be true of you, your tendencies, your impulses. Who would you be? Well, here's, here's how Paul describes the old me, the old you. It's verses 17 through 19. I'm not going to reread them. I'm just going to list off basically what he says. He says, we were futile, darkened, alienated, ignorant, hard-hearted, calloused, given over to sensuality, greed, and every kind of impurity. Be grief, right? Be nice, Paul. Jeez. And while it pains me to see it in writing, like it hurts worse when I see those things in my life, right? And again, some of us carry deep regret and shame. Like Paul acknowledges that. Like uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't minimize our past, our mistakes, right? He doesn't just sort of sweep it under the rug. But God wants you to hear this. This is what Paul is building to here, is that the old you is not the true you. Like, you, you, you need to know that, you need to, like, let that settle in, whatever it is, whatever is in your past, like, all of that stuff, the old you is not who you are anymore. Instead, verse, verse 20, like, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But the true you is the new you. So he tells us, like, we have to, like, put off the old self. Like, stop, stop wearing that guy around. Okay? He's, not, he's not helping you out anymore, right? You don't, you don't, need, you don't need him. Instead, be the new, the, the new you instead. It's sort of like, uh, maybe you've had this experience. Sometimes when our, our family gets together, like our, my, you know, my family of origin, it'll be my parents, they're still together, and then there's, there's four of us siblings, and we're aged uh, 35 to 49, the four of us. So we're kind of we're spread out. Uh, and so we're like, we're all, we're all adults, right? Uh, competent human beings, right? We, we have our own families, for crying out loud. Uh, and yet, sometimes when we get together, we all sort of revert back into our, you know, childhood roles, right? My sister becomes, you know, the way she was, and my brother, and me, and like, we all kind of like fit into these little, cat- have you, I mean, have, have you ever had that in your family? 
And it's ridiculous. Like, we're middle-aged people. Like, we're professionals. Like, we have our lives together for the most part. Like, and we still become these, like, children in those spaces without even, without even thinking about it. And we, we do the same thing as, as Christians. We so quickly go back to the old ways. Those patterns are so deeply ingrained within us. And Paul's just like, what are you doing? Like, that's not, that's not who you are anymore. It's like, I understand who you were, but that's not, that's not you. It's not us. And then he, he goes from here to describe what it looks like for us to become the new us, right? The new yous. That we need each other to put on this new self. Because it's not just the new you individually, right? Sometimes we get so individualistic, we just even read our Bibles that way. It's just me and Jesus. That is not what Paul's getting at here. He's actually pointing to this new family. And, and three things in particular that are true of this new family. True of the new you, the new us. The new, the new us, three things, we're going to unpack these. Builds with words. Is good at anger. And radically forgives. Maybe you've seen uh, yard signs or home decor. It kind of begins with uh, the phrase, like, in this house we, you know what I'm talking about? And then it kind of has, like, the code of ethics for that, that home, that family. This is, this is what Paul is doing here for us. Because we are a new us, and in this house, in this community, in this church, this is how we behave. Three things. First, first the new us builds with words. The old you didn't do it that way. Right? But the new us, the, the us that's been transformed by the love of Jesus, this is who we are now. We are people who build with our words. Right? Are we? I mean, that's my deep desire. I, w- I would guess for most of us, that's who we want to be, but my strong desire sometimes I mean, if we're honest, when you're hurt, you're offended, somebody attacks you, right, or, or, or accuses you, man, those, those strong desires come out pretty, pretty, pretty heavy, don't they, right? And you want to you wanna tear down. You want to destroy. But Paul's like, no, that's not, that's not us anymore. That's not, that's not how we do it. Verse, verse 25, look how he, he's, he's, how he says it. He says, therefore, okay, because of this newness of who we are, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one family. Okay, that's, that's an important part, this one family piece, because this is, this is why, like for Paul, it doesn't make sense to tear each other down with our words. It doesn't make sense to lie, because we're one, right? If you tear each other down, you're tearing yourself down, he's saying. If you lie to, to others, like you're, you're lying to yourself, like it doesn't make any sense. And so he begins right there, but like, so be honest, like the truth is our friend, Right? And then skip, skip down to verse, verse 29. That's where it comes out even more. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, like none, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In this house, right? Like, just, just imagine only words that build, given at just the right time, as an act of grace, as a gift of grace to one another. 
I mean, when, when's the last time you thought, not just about the words that you're going to say, but even about the timing of them, right, as fits the occasion? I love that Paul includes that, because sometimes we have the right thing to say, but we have the, a terrible time to do it, right? Or the person is not the right frame of reference or, you know, something, something like that, to actually think about when is this person going to actually receive it as an act of grace? And if you're wondering, social media is almost never the right place, right, for time. I mean, even, even one of my favorite Proverbs, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's like terrifying, but it's beautiful. It's, uh, it's Proverbs 18, 18, 21. And kids, uh, first graders, I'm going to read it out of your translation. It's so, it's so simple. It says, your tongue has the power of life and death. Which, which basically is the Proverbs way of saying, like, like, we have the power of God in our mouths, because God can actually create life with a word, right? He can actually do that. He can actually destroy and, and take life with a word. And like it's saying, like, you have that. I have that kind of power. It's terrifying, isn't it? And yet we've, we, we, know, we, we know that it's true. We've experienced it. That your tongue has the power to kill. And you've seen it murder. And some of us, right, have felt, probably all of us, from others, have felt death from the words of others spoken to us. But it also has the power to create life, right? And you've seen that too. You, you know what a well-timed word can do. That we have the power of God in our tongues. And in this house, we build with words. That's, that's the new us. Second, the new us is also good at anger. In this house, we are good at anger, which sounds ridiculous. Sounds like something a Christian can't even say, right? Can we, can we be good at anger? No, we just stuff it. We bury it deep within, right? We, we're not angry people, right? No, actually, like Paul, Paul is saying, there, there, is, there is a time for anger. Look, at, look again at verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. I mean, acknowledge, first of all, like this is a command, not a concession, right? Be angry, that there are things we should be angry at. Injustice, oppression, poverty, disease. We should be, we should be angry when we see people destroying their lives, right? Or destroying the lives uh, of others, right? Angry at our own sin or when our own self-destructive patterns begin to creep back. The old, the old us creeps back in, right? Sometimes anger is Right? I mean, Jesus was angry. There's a handful of stories that show very clearly Jesus' anger, right? And Jesus was without sin. Mark 3 is one of my favorites. And so, like, Mark 3, uh, Jesus, it's a Sabbath, right? Sort of a classic story. Uh, it's a Sabbath, and Jesus sees this guy with a withered hand, right? And you think about the shame and the, just the difficulty of living in a culture uh, in, in that way. Uh, but the reality is, like, the religious leaders are literally following Jesus around in this story waiting to trap him, just watch him. He's like, I know he's going to do something. I mean, God forbid he heal on the Sabbath, right? Look, look at what Mark, Mark tells us in Mark chapter, chapter 3. Uh, Mark, Mark describes it like this. He says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. I, just, I love that, because what did Jesus do with his anger, right? What did he do? He punched them in the face, cussed them out, and ripped into them on Facebook? 
Jesus turned his anger towards healing this man. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? That Jesus, like, he essentially, like, moves his anger towards healing, not destruction. Let me tell you, I can, I can be an angry person sometimes. I'm in recovery, I think. Anybody else angry a little bit, right? Yeah, all of us, right? I don't, I don't know a human who doesn't somehow deal with their own sense of anger, right? I know it's in me. And sometimes my strong desire is to destroy with my anger. But that's none of our deep desires, right? None of us want to be that person. I want to be the kind of person who uses anger well, who actually uses it to bring healing and not destruction. Which, which is why I think, you know, Paul makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? I mean, he says, be angry and do not sin. Like, there's this qualification there. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I mean, he's saying, be careful with your anger. Like, don't, don't sin with it. Don't give the devil an opportunity because, right, anytime we feel that sense of rage or anger bubbling, it's an opportunity for the devil to destroy us, right? And dest- destroy others through us. So don't do that. He also says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which I think, I think sometimes we take that maybe some of us a little too literally. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that's a, that's a metaphor, okay? It means deal with your anger quickly, okay? It doesn't mean you have to get it in before 6.49 p.m. tonight, right? And tomorrow you only have till 6.47, so you better... That's not, that's not what's happening, right? It's not, it's not literal, right? Sometimes... Sometimes the best thing you can do for your anger is get a good night's sleep, okay? If we're completely honest. Uh, what, what Paul is saying is just don't let it fester, right? Don't bury it. Deal with your anger and deal with it quickly is what he's saying. Because if it festers, and we know this, verse 31, right? Verse 31, skip down. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is where sinful anger often goes, isn't it? Bitterness or blowing up. Like either you bury it deep within and become a bitter, angry, hateful person, right? Or you, or you just blow up at somebody. Or frankly, you, you bury it until you blow up, right? Or you slander, Paul says. Right? Talking about others behind their back, assuming the worst, and letting it fly. Paul says, not in this house. Not here. Not the new us. Here, we are good at anger. Because we know what it's for. It's for healing. Not for destruction. Of course, we're really going to blow this, right? Both of these, we're, we're going to mess up. And Paul knows that. I love, I love actually where, where Paul builds to because he knows how difficult this is, this community thing, this new life together kind of thing. He knows we're going to mess up, which is why I'm convinced he goes to this third one next, that the new us radically forgives. Radically forgives. In this house, we radically forgive because we're not always going to build with our words, Right? And we're not always going to use our anger to bring healing. And so we have to be quick to apologize and quick to forgive. Or you will die. Your marriage will die. You'll end up alienated from your kids. 
Right? You'll lose your friendships. It'll be a serious problem at work or at school or on your team. You'll destroy the church. Because the people in your life are going to mess up, and so are you. But we are quick to apologize and quick to forgive. Verse, verse 32. <laughs> be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. I love that word. How many of us have ten- are tender-hearted? I love that. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But this is, this is the new you. This is, the, this is the new us. This is what it looks like to live in this house. You are quick to apologize, which, in case you don't know, an apology doesn't come with excuses, right? There's no but attached to it, right? Instead, you actually name what you did wrong. It's like, I'm sorry I sinned against you with my words. Or I'm sorry I, like, name, name it. Don't excuse it, whatever it is, to, to apologize. I can, remember, I can remember early on in our marriage, uh, you know, we're just, we were just kids, just trying to figure, figure it out. It's like 20 years ago. Uh, and we'd have these arguments, and we'd both hurt each other. Been there, probably. Uh, and we would then just like sit there in silence, waiting for the other person to apologize. You've been there too, haven't you, right? And like with every minute that passes, we just become more and more angry, right? Because like, why, why haven't they apologized yet, Right? And just doing that over and over and over again. But I decided early on in our marriage, after several failures, and this is not me patting on my, me on the back, just by the way, because first of all, uh, most of the problems in our marriage are mine, okay? Uh, I bring them in. Uh, and second of all, I still hate it. 20 years later, I still hate, hate it every single time. And I decided early on, I'm going to go first. At the very, the very best of my ability, I'm going I'm to be the one to apologize first. And sometimes she beats me, right? Uh, and again, I still, I still hate it, but instead of sitting there waiting, somebody's got to do it. And I can tell you, that's one of the best decisions I ever made, uh, even though it's still brutally difficult. Because my strong desires in those moments is to stonewall or retaliate, to defend myself, to grow bitter, and to make it worse. My deep desire is to grow old with this woman that I adore. And just imagine if we as a community, as we as a people, said, I'm going to do my best to go first, to apologize first. Because in this, in this house, we are quick to apologize. We name it, we don't excuse it. We apologize and then we forgive. And then we forgive again. And again, every time. And it's really important. We don't, we don't excuse other people's sins. Right? There's a big difference between forgiveness and excuse, right? Uh, and it, it, it's, sometimes we need good boundaries in our relationships. I and mean, Paul's not arguing with any of that, right? It's, it's never loving to allow another person to sin against you. Okay, don't, don't miss that, right? You, you know, sometimes we, we think that, 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 that somehow is love, right? That's not, that is not love, right? To allow somebody just to repeatedly sin against you. It's not love. So that's not what he's talking about. Nor do, we, nor do we minimize the wrong that's been done. Paul doesn't say, excuse one another as God in Christ excused you, right? No, it's, it's forgive. Look how, listen to how C.S. Lewis describes real forgiveness. 
C.S. Lewis says, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all of its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice. You see it fully, right? To excuse, he says, is not Christian charity. It's not love, right? It's just fairness. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is the true you, church. This is, this is, this is the new us. And if you think about it, like this, is, this is exactly what Jesus has done for each, each one of us. Jesus gave us life with his words. He, he took his anger at our sin, and he went to a cross to bring us healing. And even though we have wronged him more than any human has ever wronged you or me, I mean, truly, if he's, if he's a holy God, right, no matter how much you've been wronged, we have wronged God more. And still he forgives. And this is who he has called and created us to be in this new community, right? Empowered by his spirit to actually live this out in this house. And maybe you're thinking, okay, great. That sounds great. I'd love to live in a community like that, right? But I'm still really bad at these things. Anybody? Yeah, most of us probably. I certainly am. So how do we, how do we actually change? Well, I, I want to I suggest just one discipline. There's lots that can be said. One discipline that I think if you add this one routinely into your life will help you grow in these areas, right? We talk a lot about the disciplines here, the different spiritual disciplines. We don't talk a lot about this one, though. It's the discipline of silence, of like choosing to be silent even though you have every right to open your mouth. And doing that on a regular basis enough where it's like, oh, I, I do have some control over my words, right? I don't have to respond in the ways in which I think that I do. And over time, when you choose to be quiet, even when you have every right to talk, you will change, you will grow. And so, for example, if, you're, if your tendency is to use words irresponsibly, you might just need to start by like, keeping your mouth shut. And find the, the spaces where you, where you tend to, to lash out and just say, I'm not, I'm not going to do any of that. And so maybe, maybe you retaliate quick on social media, right, and Facebook or whatever. So maybe you just say, I'm not going to respond to anybody for six months. And just, just see if, if that doesn't begin to change you, right, to, to see how God forms you. But even if it's not, if it's not there, just being silent for a moment, right? Or maybe, maybe anger is your struggle. But instead, if if we learn how to be slow to speak and slow to listen, even just that last one, slow to, or uh, quick to listen, not, not slow to listen, quick to listen. I mean, maybe you're angry because you just you don't understand. You haven't listened. I mean, that's, that's when we tend to jump to conclusions in relationships, right? We assume the worst. But what if we actually try silence first so that we can listen? Or maybe you just can't seem to forgive. And listen, I know some of you have been deeply, deeply wronged. Forgiveness is hard. But in your silence, you can begin praying for your enemies. Daily. And just see what God does in your life. 
Because church, this is, this is who we are now. This is, this is the true us. If you want to know who you are, Paul describes it right here. That we who have been brought, bought with the blood of Christ, who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit, that in this house we build with words, we're good at anger, and we radically forgive. And this, this table that we come to each week is a central reminder of these truths, right? I mean, it's not incidental that we come to a family meal every week, right? Sometimes families have challenges, have conflicts, have problems, right? But when we come to this table, even the fact that we come in groups, whatever we carry with us, whatever we're feeling in those, those spaces, whether you know the people surrounding you or not, we get to hear once again the words of Jesus spoken over us, words that build, words that give life, right? We, we get to see once again his anger satisfied, his anger at sin satisfied at the cross. And we get to experience and receive his forgiveness, which we can then pass along to others.